Welcome to the Economics Explained podcast. I'm your host, Gene Tunney. The discount rate is a critical factor in a cost-benefit analysis, or CBA. Whether, say, a 3% or 7% discount rate is used can mean the difference between a project or policy stacking up or not. For instance, the authors of a 2019 Resources for the Future working paper observed, in 2017, the Trump administration issued a CBA of the Clean Power Plan to support the plan's repeal. In contrast to the Obama administration's CBA, which used a central benefit estimate based on a 3% discount rate, the new CBA of the same regulation gave equal weight to estimates based on 3 and 7%. In this episode, I chat with an Australian policy expert about whether the frequently used discount rate of 7% is too high in today's economy. I hope you enjoy our conversation. The topic of today's episode is the discount rate. My guest today co-authored a paper in 2018 for the Grattan Institute. The paper is called Unfreezing Discount Rates, Transport Infrastructure, for tomorrow. My guest is Marion Terrell, Transport and Cities Program Director at the Grattan Institute. Marion, thanks for appearing on the program. Great to be with you, Jean. Excellent. Marion, I'm looking forward to today's discussion. This is an important concept in economics, the discount rate, and I'd like to explore why it's uh, important. But first, I'll just give, I'll just read out to uh, your bio from Grattan. Marion is a leading policy analyst with experience that ranges from authoring parts of the 2010 Henry Tax Review to leading the design and development of the MyGov account. She has provided expert analysis and advice on labour market policy for the Commonwealth Government, that's the Australian Government, the Business Council of Australia and at the Australian National University. She joined the Grattan Institute in April 2015 to establish a transport program and has published on investment in transport infrastructure, cost overruns, value capture, congestion, and discount rates. So discount rates are what we're considering today. Marin, I found in your biography, it's fascinating that you, I didn't realise this, you led the design and the development of the MyGov account. So this is how Australians interact with the federal government. What did that involve? Well, it was a, a big negotiation, a two-year negotiation, really, and it was very interesting, Gene, because it, um, there had been a couple of attempts before that um, had stalled for one reason or another, and it basically it is quite hard to get um, a set of different government departments to work on a, a common goal like this because they do have different interests. They, they have different customer groups and it is a lot of work. So uh, people don't always want to change a well-established way of working. I think what was different when I did it was um, that it was not led by an IT um, perspective. It was led by a customer service perspective. And I think that did make a big difference to getting it over the line. But with all these these sort of big projects, um, there's a lot of people involved and you really need um, lots of people on side and you need a bit of luck as well. Yes, uh, I guess you would. Uh, the remarkable thing about MyGov is it it works reasonably well. Uh, I've been impressed with it, uh, but, you know, that's uh, <laughs> that's something I could, we could probably speak about another time. I want to chat about uh, discount 
rates today? Because I found your paper really interesting and it's something that I'm interested in because I've been working on a project here in Queensland uh, in Bundaberg regarding a dam and one of the issues regarding the economics of different options for the dam is what is the discount rate? So what I'd like to ask first, Marianne, is what is the discount rate and why is it important? Why should we care about it? Yes, it does seem arcane, but the discount rate is a tool that we use to put costs and benefits that occur at different points in time onto a comparable time footing. And and so what it means is that some projects are quite um, short, they, they don't take long to build, and then you start getting the benefits quickly. Others have a very long time horizon, and you do need a way of making like-for-like comparisons between them, and the discount rate is the tool that we use to do that. So what it does is it expresses how much we value costs and benefits in the future relative to costs and benefits that are occurring today. Okay. So this means that a dollar that occurs in, say, 30 years' time is worth much less than a dollar today. So there's that old proverb about how a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. And in your paper, you gave some really, well, you you gave us the uh, the estimates of what those values are for different discount rates. So is it right that the discount rate, it unwinds the process of compound interest? It's like reverse compound interest. Is that? Yeah, yeah that's exactly right. And, and it is very important because um, you do need uh, over, particularly over long time horizons, as you say, with the because of the compounding nature, it, it can have a profound impact. So if you think of a hundred dollars today, if you uh, if you take it um, to fifty years time, a hundred dollars today at a zero discount rate is still worth a hundred dollars. But if you use a seven percent discount rate, which is the standard for Australian infrastructure projects by governments, it's worth $3 today, uh, $3, sorry, in 50 years. So just this enormous difference. And, and if you, and, and typically for infrastructure projects, um, the central discount rate today is 7%, but governments, uh, proponents of projects are also asked to do sensitivity testing at 4 and 10%. And each of those um, get, yield very different results. So it's, it's kind of a hidden element. It, it's a core element, though, of cost-benefit analysis. And um, it is a, it's quite a controversial aspect of cost-benefit analysis. But I think for the general public, it's not something that people necessarily have a very high awareness of. Yes, absolutely. So it's important because, say, uh, we're looking at a building a dam, for example, or fixing up a dam, and that costs using round numbers, $1 billion today. And you would then want to look at, well, what are all the future benefits? What's the value, the additional value created by irrigated agriculture over the next 50 years? And say there's uh, there's $100 million worth of additional value in 50 years' time, so in 2070, what you're saying is that we would discount that to essentially $3 million in what they call present value terms. And then that, 
And we'd add up all of those discounted values and then compare that with the capital cost today. So it's a way of it's a way of discounting all these future values to compare them to current capital costs and work out the net present value of a project, which determines whether it gets the green light or not. Is that that's yeah, right? Yeah, and it is very. It, that's right, and it's very important because um, it, where it's really binding is um, in different because the typical pattern for an infrastructure project is that you have a lot of capital costs up front to build the thing. And then the stream of benefits occur over a long time horizon. And so it's the benefits that suffer more under an excessively high discount rate potentially. But it does depend, of course, on the pattern of when the costs and when the benefits occur as to how that plays out into the bottom line. Okay. Now, could I ask what's wrong with the typical discount rate that's used which is, uh, as you mentioned, it's 7%. That's used in Australia. That's been recommended by different infrastructure advisory bodies, such as, uh, I think, Infrastructure Australia, Building Queensland. What's wrong with that 7% rate, Marion? Could you take us through that, please? Yeah, so in a nutshell, it's too high. So just to to explain that in Australia, the way there's there's different schools of thought on how to do discounting, but Australian governments generally claim to discount on the basis of opportunity cost. And the idea here is to consider what would have been the next best use of the resources that you invest in the project. And, And the reason you do that is because there's no justification for investing in a project with low returns when there's one which available which has got the same risk but higher returns. So we call that the social opportunity cost of capital. And the, what that in, there's, there's a number of components that, that go towards that, but a really key one is the risk-free rate of return. And we, we proxy that using the Commonwealth 10-year bond rate typically or some rate of that kind. And, and what, that, what it's trying to... So, so then, the, of course, the 10-year Commonwealth bond rate varies over time. So one of the core components is varying substantially over time, and so the discount rate also should be varying to reflect that change um, in the cost of money to governments. So what's happened with the 7% discount rate is that it, it hasn't changed. So it, it seems to have been said, as best I've been able to tell, back in 1989, um, and back then the real risk-free rate was 6.8%. But by the time I wrote this paper in or 2017, um, the, the latest version at that time, the risk-free rate was not 68 but 0.8%. And, in fact, since I wrote the paper, the risk-free rate has continued to fall to the point now where it's sort of approximately zero or perhaps below so, so what you've what we're getting here is this um, very significant change in the risk-free rate, but through that whole period, a seven percent discount rate has prevailed. And and basically, if the seven percent rate was correct in 1989, it can't possibly be correct now. Yes, and it's a good point you make about what the uh, the risk-free rate is now. We're talking about real rates, aren't we? Is that right? So we're talking about yes. an inflation. Okay. And so therefore the 
the real bond rate. So if you look at what bond rates are and what governments can borrow at, their effect they could be borrowing at negative interest rates in real terms. Would that be would that be correct, Marion? And yeah, that's right. The ten year government bond yield is around 0.85 percent nominal, and CPI is um, so current CPI. I, I guess strictly speaking, you should have expected yes. rate of inflation over the next ten years. But let's just look at current CPI, which is a bit over two percent. So that would certainly take you into negative territory. Um, hard to know precisely, but let's say it's approximately zero and could well be below. Yeah. So in your paper, in the section which inspired the question, what is discounting and why does it matter, you have a quote from one of my favourite economists, Larry Summers. Larry (laughs) Summers has written, this is an especially good time to prioritise infrastructure investment because the return on infrastructure investment is high compared to the government borrowing rate, which is currently close to zero adjusted for inflation. So is this related to Larry Summers's concept of secular stagnation, Marion? Yeah, so you, your, I guess your question is about, um, yeah, so this is a, it's a well-established line of argument. And, and I think the quote that you just read out um, is even more true now because as we're seeing, the government borrowing rate is more or less zero or less adjusted for inflation. And, and the question, I th- the, the way I'd answer that question is thinking about, well, um, this is about whether we're investing in a big enough portfolio of government infrastructure projects. And the, uh, the concern is that we have this excessively high or artificially high discount rate, and that means that projects can't pass the test that, uh, of having their assessed benefits outweigh their assessed costs. So just to explain a little bit further, the decline in real interest rate matters because economists like Larry Summers believe that to overcome a recession, the central bank has to drive down the real interest rate to encourage more spending in investment. But with the rates so low um, or um, or at the point where it's into negative territory, that becomes effectively impossible. And therefore, governments should be spending more on infrastructure and on things like education. So, so, so that's all fine. The, the, and the, I think he would also say if the money's, provided the money's spent wisely, it, this could contribute to productivity growth, which is one of the problems that we have. But I, I'm not sure, Gene, that I necessarily um, think that that is how this is playing out. And the reason I think that is just to do with the institutional arrangements of how governments do infrastructure spending in Australia. Uh, Typically, um, rather than that, they're not like a company where if you're BHP Billiton or something, if every every project that passes a hurdle rate, you'll you'll probably do it, you'll probably build it. But with government budgeting, it's more in the realm of a set envelope for infrastructure projects and then uh, the candidates within the envelope are vying to be chosen rather than funding every project that has got sufficiently high net benefits. So, so I think um, that the key point, I think it is, there is a concern about pro- we may not be building enough infrastructure, but I think there's a further concern that 
if we did do better quality assessment, including using a more realistic discount rate, we'd end up with different projects within the portfolio. Right. Okay. So you considered transport projects, didn't you, Marion? What were your conclusions regarding transport projects? Would your would lowering the discount rate mean that we would invest more in in highways or in uh, in tunnels? Or do you have any insights regarding uh, regarding transport infrastructure? I think the general comment I'd make is if we did have a more realistic discount rate, then we would expect to see more of the types of projects that have got very long time horizons. So people often talk about the examples of climate change mitigation projects, which are obviously not transport, but the kind of um, transport projects that are, are big and will take a long time for the benefits to start coming on stream, they'll look more attractive. Um, and that, yeah, so probably uh, size and scale more than and type of project would be um, what I would expect to see happen. But I think like you, you would definitely expect that there would be more project or there should be more projects certainly to be assessed as worth building. Whether governments then decide to go ahead and invest it is a, is a whole other question. Yeah, because there are other considerations. I mean, governments will be considering how much debt they have Already, the debt to the debt to GDP ratio, all that sort of, you know, those metrics. Uh, they'll be concerned about that. They might be concerned about their credit rating. So yeah, but in terms of the ranking of projects, um, it, it's a bit, it's a little bit difficult to assess because most infrastructure projects, you don't, uh, the business cases are not in the public domain. But we looked at a handful of projects and um, uh, at different under different discount rate scenarios. And so um, at a 4% discount rate, it's quite easy. Oh, it's much more common, of course, for projects to have benefits in that are assessed to, to outweigh their costs. But um, one thing we noticed was um, once you consider them at a 7% discount rate, the, the ranking changes. And so, for example, inland rail, which is a the freight line between Brisbane and Melbourne, um, is... Uh, of the four projects that, that we look at on, on this particular graph, we at 7%, it, it's got the highest net benefits. But once you use a 7% discount, sorry, 4%, it's got the highest net benefits of the four. Once you go to a 7% discount rate, it's got the lowest net benefits of the four. So you, I think we would expect, I think decision makers yeah. would have a different set of information in front of them um, with, with a more realistic discount rate that would allow them to make better quality decisions about which are the most beneficial projects for the community. Sure. That's a good example, that inland rail one. So what were the other projects you compared it with, Marion? Do you we remember? With, we compared with Canberra Light Rail, Murray oh, Basin yeah. Rail, the Melbourne Metro Tunnel, which is a rail project and inland rail. So quite they're all rail projects but very different types of projects. I would say since we did this, Quite a lot more business cases are in the public domain, but they don't always give you the sensitivity testing at different discount rates. Yeah. So that was that was the, the difficulty that we butted up against. But yeah, certainly something like Canberra Light Rail, um, uh, it didn't make a lot of difference to that project whether you assessed it at four percent or seven percent. 
Um, whereas for something like inland rail, it made a very big difference. And, and I think you can attribute that um, in large part just to the scale of the project. Right. So having a lower discount rate, that means that projects which have a high capital cost and where it takes a long time to get that payback, a lower discount rate's better for those projects relative to others where they might have a lower capital cost and the payback occurs more quickly or, or yeah. it takes – yeah, there's a it doesn't take as long to ramp up to the a reasonable level of benefits. I'm just trying to think about this intuitively, what that must mean about the different projects. Yeah, that's exactly right, yeah. Um, so another one that had a, that it makes a very big difference to is the Melbourne Metro Tunnel. So it's a multi-billion dollar project in in Melbourne. It's kind of a, a rail loop that um, is under construction at the moment. So it, make, it makes a huge difference to a very big ambitious project like that. Um, not to say Canberra Light Rail is not ambitious, but it's just not on the same scale. Mm. And a uh, questionable project uh, as someone who used to live in Canberra. Uh, I'm, I'm struggling. <laughs> I struggle to see the need for Canberra Light Rail given how easy it was to get around Canberra anyway. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's not really, it's, it, it doesn't really have a, it's not a very dead city, not a, not a big population anyway. Um, so with the discount rate in your paper, you've got that $100 in 2068. So that's 50 years from when you wrote the paper. If you discounted it 7% in present value terms, that's $3. But if you discount it 3 0.5%, that's $18. So that's six times more than if you discounted it at that 7% rate. So that shows just how much a, a change in the discount rate can affect how much you value uh, future benefits. Uh, Marion, could I ask, how does the level of project risk, how does the riskiness of the project affect the discount rate you should use in assessing the project? This is an issue that um, seems to be uh, uh, gives rise to a bit of confusion. So let me step you through it. There's three distinct types of risks that are relevant to public infrastructure projects, but only one of them, systematic risk, is reflected in the discount rate. So the first type of risk is downside risk or optimism bias, and that's essentially the risk that the the project's going to cost more or deliver less than forecast. And um, that is a problem in Australia, no doubt about it, but that's not part of the discount rate. Idiosyncratic risk is the second type, and that's just normal variation by which any given investment could turn out to either outperform or underperform against expectations. And that is also not part of the discount rate. That that risk should be managed by diversification. Investors should... Um, like government should hold many investments, and if it spreads them, then th- those that risk, idiosyncratic risk, should net out. The form of risk that is included in the discount rate is what's known as systematic risk. And systematic risk is the extent to which the returns on a particular project are expected to fluctuate in lines in line with returns to the market or the economy as a whole. Now, when we, if you think about the types of projects that governments make, um, uh, invest in, so the, these transport projects are things like um, 
railway lines and um, urban freeways and um, freight rail, for example, all these types of things, they are all projects that will be used in good times and in bad. Um, so they're all sort of fairly low systematic risk in that the returns or the usefulness of the project um, doesn't, you wouldn't expect it to vary that much, um, whether the economy is booming or in the doldrums. Um, people will still be driving to work. They'll still be, t you know, it's true some people might lose their jobs, but mostly people don't and mostly they they continue to go about their business. So, so typically government transport projects, I, I would say, um, would have low systematic risk. Um, it, some of them would have particularly low systematic risk and some not quite as low um, but basically they are all not particularly, like on the whole, I would say they're not particularly risky in the sense of this systematic risk, the fluctuation in line with the economy as a whole. That's really interesting, Mary. And I, I would say that that point is not that well understood. That's a really good point. So could I ask about other types of infrastructure? I mean, you mentioned transport. Have you thought about What's the amount of systematic risk associated with uh, other types of infrastructure investment? Well, it, um, it is a little bit outside my field, um, to be honest, Jean. Uh, so I did focus, um, but it, but I think the uh, like typical like a lot of um, a lot of investments will have. Uh, so I guess I, I ended up thinking that the discount, uh, in a technical sense, this um, this uh, is, is captured in in the uh, valuation formula as the what's known as the beta, and um, I, I, I looked at um, a number of things. I looked at government PPP guidelines and at how governments value assets in that context, and also regulated assets and what <laughs> regulators think is the return on regulated assets. And and so so some of those are. Um, rail track, water and energy sectors. Um, and so they, they regulated utilities are not the same as a typical transport project, but they're kind of similar in that they, they don't have a lot of um, equivalent alternatives and they're, um, you know, so they kind of got slightly monopolistic type of characteristics and they are um, essential services. So, I think um, those types of things generally I would expect them to be pretty, those sort of uh, rail track, water and energy sectors ought to be pretty similar as the as to this broader portfolio of transport projects that I've looked at, um, whereas more financial assets will tend to have much higher betas um, on, um, often because they'll fluctuate much more in line with general market conditions. Okay. Marion, ju just to recap, uh, you're saying that the central discount rate, so the standard discount rate should be 4% or it should be 4% or something like that? And yeah, well, I had actually recommended um, when I wrote the paper that, um, th that there'd be two levels of discount rate for, for transport projects. So one rate would be 3.5% and that would be for for projects with very low levels of systematic risk. And by that I mean bus projects, road projects and urban passenger rail. And then some 
other projects which are um, still have pretty low systematic risk, um, but a bit higher, such as ferries and freight rail, I was recommending 5%. But if you look at what has happened to the um, risk-free rate now, I, I think those rates um, today would be lower. I think they would be more like 25 and 3% rather than 35 and 5%. And that would be driven by the fact that you know, your your real 10-year bond yield is is now approximately zero, whereas at the time um, it was close to 1%. So a couple of years ago it was close to 1%. Yeah. It's interesting because building Queensland, in Queensland where I am and I'm in Brisbane, it recommends a central discount rate of 7% and test, do your sensitivity test at 10% and I think it's 4%. Uh, at the to, at the lower end. Yeah. Now, you're essentially arguing that what Building Queensland and possibly Infrastructure Australia has as the the lower bound uh, for the sensitivity test, that should be the, the central case. Have you had any feedback from any of those infrastructure advisory bodies or any treasuries or finance uh, or the finance department on your paper? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, quite, uh, quite a bit of feedback. Um, yeah, so I've talked to um, most of the uh, infrastructure advisory bodies um, and, and several of them indeed, met, uh, you know, a conversation over a sustained period. I've also talked to treasuries and finance departments about this. So um, the, I guess the there isn't a consensus on this. I think... One of the reasons why, um, or I think the it's, it's in the public domain really that the reason that Infrastructure Australia is opposed to a change is that they are worried about opening the floodgates to poor quality projects. So they um, see the this uh, jacking up the the discount rate as a counter to uh, to the to too many projects getting through that are not of, of good quality, um, counter to optimism bias essentially. So I think, um, and I I very much respect that desire because I also um, think politicians are too often tempted to waste public money, and but I do think that perspective comes at a cost. It does distort public policy priorities too much away from longer-term projects. And I think it also has another effect, which is that it dissuades people who are involved in project evaluations from insisting on rigorous analysis elsewhere in transport project business cases because there's already this kind of uh, device in there to... um, which people know uh, or I think many people accept to be sort of not really, it's there for a different purpose. It's not really expressing a discount rate concept. It's trying to put the brakes on um, something that is difficult to put the brakes on. So I think I'd rather, I I think um, it is really important not to, you know, to have rigorously assessed business cases and that the, Project appraisals are robust, so I would not suggest changing the discount rate in isolation, but I, I do think um, it, it, 
so there's a there's a series of improvements that governments could make in how they they do do business cases, but um, the discount rates are, is a powerful element, and so I do believe it should be um, part of a set of reforms um, so that decision makers do know they can make decisions with their eyes open um, and, uh, and and to know which are the best projects and in which order. Very good point, Marion. I agree. Using the discount rate as a way to counter that optimism bias, I don't think that is the optimal way to do it. So, uh, yep, I absolutely agree with you. You would know about the uh, Clem 7 tunnel here in Brisbane where they, I think they forecast 80,000 cars a day or something and they ended up getting 20-something thousand. So I think that's what uh, Infrastructure Australia is worried about. So they're rightly concerned about optimism bias, but I agree with you, using the discount rate, having a high discount rate to counter it, that's not really the best way to do it. We should be forcing the proponents of projects to justify their assumptions. Yes. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Yeah. And, and I think um, more transparency would be helpful. Um so that people can, you know, the, the broader public and interested parties can scrutinise the quality of these business cases as well. So I, I do think we're seeing a bit more of that happening. There are more business cases in the public domain now than there, there were a few years ago, and I, I really applaud that. Yes. Um, but it's, uh, uh, there's a way to go still. Okay. We're running close to time. Would you have time for one more question, Marion? Sure. Excellent. I have a question about the philosophy behind the discount rate. And in your paper, you note that there are two different approaches to the discount rate. Actually, I think you mentioned the opportunity cost of capital approach earlier in our conversation. There's an alternative perspective that is used in the UK, France and Sweden, which is the social time preference approach. Could you please explain what that approach is, please, Marion? Yeah, so this is um, the rate of social time preference is um, taking a different, it's a sort of a different school of thought on how to set discount rates and it, it does yield lower rates than a social opportunity cost of capital approach. The, the idea is that it, um, it's ex an expression of the price at which society is willing to trade a claim to consume today with a claim to consume in the future. And so the elements that make this up are, um, as you've said before, that we're impatient, we prefer a, a, a bird in the hand or a dollar today. Um, but I think it's also, it's reflecting um, that we, there's, there's something risky about not taking uh, like, you know, we, we may be dead, we may not be able to to take advantage of something. So um, it's, it, it is about, um, there, there is no way for, for governments to know how individuals would trade off a claim to consume today with a claim to consume in the future. But, that, but decision makers have to set a discount rate that, that tries to express these um, these types of concepts, and, and they have a few, there's a couple of other, for your uh, economics audience, a couple of other uh, 
economic ideas in there, which is how averse we are to inequality over time and also how wealthy we expect to be in the future because uh, we, you know, if you're less wealthy, you value a dollar today, you value a dollar more than a person, a person who has not much um, values a, a dollar more than a person who has a lot. So, th so these all ideas are, are captured in a, a rate of social time preference. It may sound um, quite airy-fairy, but it's, it is very important. Uh, th this way of thinking has been very influential um, when looking at, um, the, at climate change um, because it, it has these more philosophical underpinnings or, or these underpinnings that don't rely on information from a market about the future, they um, they get to more what we prefer without rather than what we express our preference for in the market. So um, it, it is it is used as a discount rate um, as a basis for discount rate setting in um, in the UK and in Europe. Um, it's uh, it does tend to yield lower discount rates, and so then typically um, authorities have to uh, counter in or, or tend to counter in some way to deal with the problem we were talking about before about too many projects look like they're worth doing, um, and governments don't want to build them all or not all at once. Um, so that it is, um, yeah, it, it's a it is a different approach, and it has been important and there's certainly plenty of people who think it would be a better approach than the one that we use um, but in the end either way I think they, it's certainly seeking to do the same thing which is to um, establish a method for um, putting a value on future costs and benefits relative to today's costs and benefits. Okay oh it's a uh it's an interesting approach, and I remember reading something by the World Bank about it a, a few years ago. I might link to it in the show notes. It would mean that economies would have different discount rates. So if you're a, in the Treasury or a finance ministry of a, an emerging economy such as Indonesia, you might have a – would you have a higher discount rate than an economy like a someone in the treasury in Australia, because if you're in a an economy that's not as wealthy, then you would probably prefer more prefer to have consumption or to have benefits in well today than in the future, because well you've got a lot of uh, poor residents or poor people in your economy to look after. Would that is that? Is that something I could say? Is that justifiable? Yeah, I, I think that I think that would be right. I mean, I, I would just make the comment that um, we have been talking today about the discount rate, but it would be a bit more uh, precise, perhaps, um, to talk about discount rates because the rates will vary according to the asset or the investment. But I, I, your, your general comment is, that I think, absolutely right. Um, and um, one of the things that people sometimes um, are surprised to know is that um, the discount rate for a particular investment should be the same, whether it's in the public sector or private sector, because um, it's, it's the project itself that has a discount rate rather than a 
generic one. So when I have been talking about setting discount rates, I have um, it, it's been a an approximation in a sense um, and a limiting of the discount rates to um, a manageable um, number. Whereas it, I think in a perfect world, they they would vary quite a bit more. Okay, Marion, that's been great. Uh, Marion Terrell, Transport and Cities Program Director at the Grattan Institute. Uh, I really, yeah, welcome your uh, your thoughts today. Uh, I thought that was really informative. Are there any points uh, before we wrap up? Anything final? Anything we missed? Oh, no, I think you did great coverage, actually. Thanks, Gene. Okay, very good. Marion, I've uh, really enjoyed our conversation and hope we can chat again sometime. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. Thank you very much for getting in touch. Absolutely. Thanks, Marion. Okay, bye-bye. We've reached the end of another Economics Explained episode, so thanks for listening all the way through. If you're enjoying Economics Explained, please tell your family and friends and rate the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher or on whatever platform you are listening on. Finally, if you have any questions, comments or suggestions, please get in touch. My email address is gene.tunny at gmail.com. Until next week, goodbye.